Hey Highland, welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. My name is Matt Pinson. I'm here with two Davids today, David Sessions as always, and our special guest, David Ray. Say hello, guys. Hello. <laughs> good morning. Well, <laughs> it was time sensitive, so oh, you don't yeah, say yeah. good morning, so yeah, good hello. Good day. Good day. Yeah, good or day. Or night. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, David, David Ray, you've been, uh, been an elder at Highland for 30 plus years. Correct. Um, your family, one of the original members of Highland and, uh, go, goes back, uh, far, far in the history of this place. And so you care deeply about Highland and, uh, also to know because you were one of my professors and undergrad and graduate that you care deeply about prayer. And that's, um, where we're wanting to center our conversation for the next couple of weeks and so thanks for being here and thanks for loving Highland and um, being willing to talk to us about prayer. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Um, One place we kind of like to start is if you wouldn't mind talking to us about what prayer was like in childhood. What did your parents teach you about prayer? What are some of your earliest memories of prayer? Sure. Um, as you referred, uh, my father and his uh, family were members of the Highland Church when it was founded in 1929. So I was born in uh, 1945. So I grew up in the Highland Church. Uh, my dad and mom were godly people. But in that era, uh, we mostly talked at God. Mm. Um, used a lot of cliches, bless the sick and afflicted, uh, give the preacher a ready recollection, all those kind of things. And so they were very rote prayers. Uh, I would hasten uh, to mention here, though, they were very sincere and heartfelt prayers. So as we talk today, my premise will be you don't pray as you should, you pray as you can. So as a child, I prayed as I could. And that was just very simple, rote kind of prayers. And uh, that was true uh, during my early years, my, I would say, uh, elementary years, and uh, even through my adolescent years. Mm -hmm. And it was not until I graduated from college that I gained a different perspective about prayer. Interesting. Yeah. I I think that's such an important distinction that you're making that uh, rote prayers does not mean insincere prayers. Uh, What signaled that for you? How did you know as a child that these were uh, not cynical prayers of people that are just uh, praying the same thing every time? Let the preacher have a ready recollection. How could you tell? I don't know that I had any awareness at that point. Uh, One of my favorite authors talks about uh, spiritual growth like the rings of a tree. And the innermost ring is experiential faith, mm. experiential prayer. And so you pray at meals, you pray at bedtime, you pray just the natural rhythms of the day. Mm-hmm. And you really don't have much perspective of that. You just, that's what your environment is. Yeah. And then he says, as you go out from the rings of that tree, the second ring of the tree is an affiliative faith. An affiliative faith is how you disconnect with everybody else in the church, the institution. Sure. And so an affiliative faith is not your own personal faith. It's just reflecting, much like a projector reflects uh, the image on the screen. It's reflecting uh, what's going on around you. Got it. Then the third ring, he says, is a searching faith when you start asking questions beyond the affiliation. And finally, he would say, 
the last mm -hmm. ring of that tree would be an own personal integrated faith. Mm -hmm. So as a child, I very definitely had an experiential faith. Right. Just what watching what my parents did, that was true in the filative faith, in the organization, in the church, as I would hear people pray from the platform and hear Bible class teachers pray and so forth. Um, and it wasn't until after college, this particular author says, that you don't go into a searching faith until probably adolescence or even late adolescence. And he seldom observed individuals with an own personal faith before the age of 30. Wow. So uh, I prayed very much like the organization that I was a part of, the sure. Highland Church. And uh, those were meaningful prayers. I didn't question those prayers. Um, until much later in adolescence, whenever I started searching and asking a different set of questions. So this is a real, you bring up a really interesting dynamic because in our previous series, we were talking about deconstruction. And um, we noted that there are some things walking around calling themselves deconstruction that are maybe actually closer to cynicism or um, uh, un misplaced angst or something. But then there's actually um, some people that are deconstructing in that deconstruction might be a necessary developmental stage. And so are you, would you say, you're, based on this author, you're, you're agreeing with that, that to go to own faith, there has to be some form of deconstruction, whether that's in our prayer life or, or something else? Uh, as you're suggesting, that's a delicate topic. Yeah. It often is characterized by cynicism, a critical spirit. Uh -huh. um, not only angst, but uh, even anger and all kind of emotions. Yeah. So uh, for me, the model that uh, best represents my thinking is transitional adult. Okay. A transitional adult is someone that went through some experiences that perhaps were not as healthy as you would like for them to be. Okay. But because of reading, because of community, because of good conversation partners, because of education, you grow uh, beyond some of those practices and behaviors yeah. of uh, earlier years. For example, if a child is abused, they become a transitional adult whenever they move beyond that. They still love and appreciate their parents, not for what they did, but they appreciate and love their parents, but they see a different way of living. Okay. And a transitional adult would then grow uh, to much healthier ways of uh, living life. And so rather than uh, deconstruction, um, I think you're right. There are times that uh, you've got to cast off before you can add on. Mm -hmm. But um, I prefer to see what happened in the past uh, as the very best that most of those people could do. Yeah. They didn't have a mean spirit. They didn't have a destructive spirit. That's just how they did life, and that's how they had been formed. Right. And so... I'm fortunate through my experiences, both educationally, with family, uh, with uh, godly, godly people, primarily the elders of this church, uh, to have grown to a situation as a transitional adult where I have much healthier practices than I had even as a child. Right. Yeah. One thing that I think is interesting about kind of the deconstruction that young people especially are going through today is in the past, you might have had one or two stories from your personal experience that led to a deconstruction. And today, there's a collection of all the stories across the world that have happened that are accessible mm -hmm. at any given time. And so 
if you if you start feeling a tug of deconstruction, there is an endless well of ways to get cynical yeah. <laughs> about what's going sure. on in the church. Sure. Which is uh, which is I think has made it a kind of a more toxic form for in people's lives because they can you can really get go down a rabbit hole and not be able to find your way out. Mm-hmm. Well, you can imagine as a grandfather uh, with four grandsons, I have conversations regularly mm-hmm. uh, with the young adults about um, life, about uh, the state of society, uh, the secular environment, and all those kind of things. And so I think you're right. Uh, deconstruction is pervasive. Yeah. And if you're not careful, uh, your uh, metaphor of a rabbit hole is a really good example. Back to my author that I talked about, experienced faith, affiliative faith, and then a searching faith, uh, most individuals go through a searching faith. And you have one of two options. You can just spin off into oblivion and deconstruct everything that had happened to you previously, or uh, you can find a healthier path mm-hmm. that gives some principles uh, to live by uh, that are much better than one had previously. And so just because you're in a searching faith, that can be either a bane or a blessing. And uh, we need to be fully aware of that. But deconstruction is a major issue, but I would not use that terminology to describe my transition from experienced faith to an own personal faith. Yeah, and and, uh, talk to us, maybe even um, more even... We're kind of identifying here that, that uh, terms and labels sometimes fall short. And so use use terms, but also tell, tell us the story of uh, that transition for you from um, childhood affiliative faith, affiliative praying, to uh, this time post-college that you, you've referenced uh, where things begin to change. Uh, those that have an awareness of the history of the Highland Church, when you go back 70 years, Highland had a very restricted Uh, I would even say sectarian spirit. And so I was reared in that Mm -hmm. and uh, basically adopted it and uh, embodied it until I went to uh, Abilene Christian. When I went to Abilene Christian, I became a Bible major. Mm -hmm. And even through my undergraduate work, I still reflected a lot of the legalism uh, that was characteristic of Church of the Christ and my uh, formation uh, as a child and an adolescent. When I came back to graduate school, I remember vividly taking a course with Paul Faulkner on the philosophy of religion. Mm-hmm. And they had us read David Elton Trueblood's book on philosophy of religion. And I kept on reading sections of it to my wife saying, this is some of the most remarkable things I've ever read. And then it dawned on me about halfway through that course is, oh, no, he's a Quaker. (laughs) And so it caused me to really rethink almost everything. Uh And so that put me on a quest. I would say that was probably the pivotal, seminal turning point in my life whenever I broke away from sectarianism to start thinking much more broadly. Went on, finished that graduate degree. When I got out, I had a very different perspective as a transitional adult who had left that sectarianism and even legalism uh, to much more of a uh, healthier, robust kind of prayer life and faith. So, sorry for the, uh, <laughs> the, the nature of this question a little bit, but what did that feel like? Was that um, 
freeing, liberating? Was it scary? Because uh, now I'm floating in the wide open without a tether. Yeah. What, what was that like? Uh, the word that I often use there is disequilibrated. Yeah. Disequilibration uh, changes everything that you've thought about, most things you've thought about in the past, and refigures your future. Mm. And so it was uh, very disconcerting, mm-hmm. disequilibrating, mm-hmm. Uh, to struggle with it and to ask, okay, f- why is this guy have such spiritual insights and such a healthy prayer life, mm-hmm. and uh, he's not a part of our tribe? Yeah. And uh, that's one of many things that set me on uh, an exploration of all that. The other thing, two other things that were so important to me was uh, when I was 29 years of age, I was invited to come to the Highland Church and be on staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, I had the opportunity to work with Lynn Anderson, longtime preaching minister here, but primarily the elders of the Highland Church. Yeah. And the Highland Church elders had grown beyond sectarianism and were incredibly prayerful people. Mm-hmm. And when I uh, resigned my position after 15 years on staff, the letter I wrote them of resignation said, much of what I know about prayer and practice in prayer is from watching you. Wow. Because they were incredibly prayerful people. What happened? What, how did that change happen in, in that room from going from highly sectarian to, to what you're describing? I would say John Allen Chalk's uh, ministry that started in um, when? 1969 or 70. Mm-hmm. He only preached for 18 months. His entire preaching time at the Highland Church was on the Book of Romans. Hmm. And so he began to turn the stern of that ship uh, substantially. After 18 months, he went to law school. Wow. Then Lynn Anderson was hired. Uh-huh. And one of Lynn's primary objectives from get-go was two things, uh, preaching grace. And secondly, uh, helping elders transition from being trustees to being shepherds. Wow. And so as elders made that transition, they became more prayerful, more engaged in spiritual disciplines, more concerned about the pastoral needs of the church. And, of course, I watched all that. So much of what I learned about ministry was watching them. Much of what I learned about being a father, I watched them parent this entire church. Wow. And what I learned about being a person of prayer, I learned from watching them and participating with them. So I would say that was uh, probably the primary thing. After I'd been in Highland 10 years, the Highland elders graciously gave me a six-week sabbatical. Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, here's a wad of money. And uh, you go do anything you want to do during that six weeks. Wow. Uh, I did several things. One thing I did was to go to a place 35, 40 miles south of here, a big ranch, took a horse that I owned, and I rode uh, from cool morning until hot day and then uh, cool evenings. But the rest of the time I was reading uh-huh. and uh, spending time in solitude, silence, and prayer. Mm-hmm. I'd never spent a week doing that before. Mm-hmm. The next week, I went to Chicago and took a doctoral course on the ecology of spirituality. Okay. What okay. does that mean? It's kind of, it's <laughs> kind of whiplash yeah. from uh, the solitude of Texas uh, yeah. ranch to uh, Chicago, Illinois. The ecology of spirituality says spiritual formation, spirituality is not some kind of program you apply to people, but it's an ecology. It's a culture. It's a part of the milieu of what uh, you're a part of. Wow. So that... Or an ecosystem. That, yeah, the ecosystem, that's yeah. a good word, yeah. David. 
so it completely changed my perspective of all of that. It was a really disequilibrating week again to think through all this kind of things. And uh, it set my, project, uh, my trajectory uh, in very radically different ways of thinking about prayer, spirituality. And it was really the genesis of me beginning teaching both the master's level and the doctoral level courses on spiritual formation. So how would you describe then your prayer practices at that point? You know, we've kind of got, uh, and, and I'm also interested in what you observed when you talk about the uh, elders of this church teaching you how to pray. Uh, what did you observe them actually doing? And what is your practice, what did your practice start looking like? Yeah. So I've suggested that growing up, uh, my posture was to pray at God yeah. with all of the cliches and rote. Mm -hmm. Uh, one author says the next level of that is to pray to God. Mm -hmm. And praying to God is usually requesting mm -hmm. sick and afflicting mm -hmm. issues, uh, issues of uh, this or that. And uh, that, again, is the way you pray when you can, not as sure. you ought. Sure. This author would go on and say the next level is being with God. Okay. So then life becomes prayer, not words. Mm. That doesn't mean you don't use words, but it may be silent words. It may be audible words. Uh, at that point, I discovered that you don't just pray um, spontaneous prayers. That's a really good way to pray. Yeah. Uh, but you also learn to pray scripture. Yeah. So I discovered uh, the Psalms is the prayer book of the Bible. Yeah. I learned to pray prayers of antiquity. Hmm. And so I would uh, go and get prayer books, not books about prayer, but books of prayer yeah. and uh, one of my favorite books is 2,000 years of prayer that mm. goes back to first century and comes up through the current time and uh, that marvelous book uh, is 800 pages of just prayers that people have prayed and have been recorded mm. through 2,000 years and that's one of many uh, books out there uh, Walter Brueggemann has two books of prayer that I use just constantly so I discovered that you can use written prayers uh -huh. that are really helpful throughout the ages. I also discovered breath prayers, where you just say a phrase or quote a, a verse from Scripture and you reflect on that, mm -hmm. which was incredibly helpful to me. I also discovered uh, dwelling in the Word, mm -hmm. uh, where you read a passage, you sit in quiet with it for a period of time, you read it again, sit in quiet, you read it again, you sit it in quiet, and allow scripture to uh, become a part of you and to be uh, very much prayer for you. So that was a really helpful thing. Um, the contemplative prayer, where I don't have to be saying anything, I'm just being with God and I'm perceiving life as prayer. So when Jesus goes and spends all night with God on the mountain and so forth, he's not just babbling words, right. he's just being in the presence of the one he loves. Yeah. So it's like if a person's married, uh, you get in the car, you drive to Dallas, and you may not say much. Right. It's just enough to be in the presence of the one you love. Right. And so that's what uh, uh, contemplative prayer is all about. Yeah. It, it almost sounds like you can cross this threshold where uh, prayer is something you look forward to. And not uh, a box I need to check on my spiritual uh, workout list, but... Uh, you know, we had Ann Reese on the podcast, and she talked about uh, being influenced by somebody who prayer became drinking his morning coffee with God and watching the birds land on the tree. And sure. 
and that that's um, I, I'm searching for words here not only permissible but pleasing to God yeah. is there something where because it feels like one of the transitions that gets made in that time is you is you stop seeing God as a as an entity that's somewhere else that you are like making a phone call to to an entity that is all around us and within us and how do you make how does somebody make that transition so you have two good questions let me answer Matt's first uh, one's profile of God is very important whether you see God as judgmental and vindictive, um, as so many people in sectarian religion do, yeah. fear, apprehension. Right. Uh, or do you see God as this uh, grandfatherly type that just grants every wish you want? Mm -hmm. Okay, somewhere on that polarity, there seems to be a healthier profile of God. Right. Um, and so I think you're right, Matt. It's really critical about what one's perspective of God is. Uh, who is this entity that you're praying to? And uh, that's a very deep question that uh, we can't resolve here today. And I talked to some of the best theological minds that I know at Abilene Christian University. And when you ask them, what does it mean to love God? Um, they will hesitate before they jump in and answer that. Mm. Okay, so God is so much other. I can relate so much easier to Jesus um, I was someone that uh, walks with me and is uh, a companion and so forth, but the God of the universe is much more difficult. <laughs> okay, so prayer, I think, really is reflective of one's uh, perspective of all of that. Um, your question, David, uh, has to do with, uh, okay, how did you start thinking beyond that about prayer? Yeah. And uh, so I come back where I started. Uh, you don't learn all these techniques about dwelling in the Word and praying Scripture. You don't learn all these techniques and say, okay, now I'm going to do that and become a spiritual person. Right. My experience is that you become so disequilibrated mm. or the prayer type, form, pattern that you're using becomes so routine and even boring then you begin to ask, is there anything else? Mm -hmm. So I will tell you the times that I have been majorly transformed from moving, from praying as I could to thinking about other ways of praying uh, was when I was really disequilibrated. Okay. Um, when I took that course in Chicago, uh, it wasn't just about information. It caused right. me to reevaluate uh, so much of who I am and what I'm about. Yeah. I've had so many incidents in my life. I had a brother that was killed in a plane crash at age 32 mm. with a two-year-old, four-year-old, six-year-old left behind. Uh, that changed my prayer life and my spiritual perspective enormously. Yeah. My wife almost died of pneumonia. Uh, she was in ICU for two weeks. That changed my prayer life considerably. Yeah. Um, after I retired, I went through some times of... Uh, Anxiety, mm. I changed my prayer life. So those periods of disequilibration cause us to prefigure uh, the way we've been doing things and think about the future. Yeah. And it's really important at that point, it seems to me, to at least be aware of how people have prayed through 2,000 years sure. uh, beyond just making requests or uh, just talking at God. 
Yeah, so you, you talk about these times of uh, disequilibration as um, certainly not times you want to re repeat or you would wish on anybody, but you're also talking about them in, in tones right now that you're aware of how they maybe led you to deeper places. And uh, I, I'm, just, I'm wondering, was that you're in those times and you don't know what to pray, and so there's the these books of antiquity, is this silence and solitude, is this uh, praying the psalms of disappointment, frustration with God? What, what does it look like for you in those moments? Yeah. So what I'm describing when I talk about times of disequilibration is uh, what some call spontaneous formation. Hmm. So there's intentional formation, things that I do particularly, worship, prayer, scripture reading, those kind of things. And those are intentional and really important right. in the life of the Spirit. Uh, but so often we don't talk about spontaneous formation. These, when the unexpected call comes in the middle of the night yeah. and changes your entire perspective of things. Right. So there's always a time then of being disequilibrated and as you come out of that time of disequilibration, you start asking a whole different set of questions. Yeah, like what? Um, uh, why am I doing what I'm doing? Who am I? Mm -hmm. uh, why is this so important? For example, I was on staff here at the Highland Church uh, when my brother was killed. Yeah. I was 35, he was 32. I'd been here five or six years. Uh, I was spending daylight and dark uh, in ministry, yeah. pushing, you guys know what I'm talking about. I was spending 50, 60 more hours a week. Uh, there were 400 Bible class teachers that we recruited at that point. At that point, we had Bible classes on Sunday morning, mm -hmm. Bible classes on Sunday night before worship, mm -hmm. Bible classes on Wednesday night, and uh, women, uh, women's classes. Mm -hmm. So there were 400 Bible class teachers that I was constantly looking and trying to recruit. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So my identity became how well I could make that work. Yeah. My brother's killed, and it pulls the rug out from under you and asks the question, is this all there is? Yeah. Is this really what I need to be spending my time doing? Yeah. What should I be doing? Yeah, so it's asking a whole different set of questions about who you are, your identity, as opposed to what you do. Your performance. Who I am is more important than what I do. Uh, and so many of us, my experience even through the last uh, 30 years, many of us emphasize what we do more than who we are. Yeah. And who we are is more about prayer. Mm. And what we do is more about skills and strategies and logistics and those kind of things. So wow. there's a real big difference uh, in my life. So what did... You know, very practical things. What did I learn to do? I learned to, as I would drive home uh, from uh, Highland, and then later even driving home from ACU where I served as administrator, uh, I would lead the radio off. Mm -hmm. I would use the time for reflection. Mm -hmm. I would make myself think about all the ways in which God worked through and in me that day mm -hmm. rather than uh, wringing my hands about all the things I did not get done and feeling guilty about that. Uh, I often uh, use the time for what's called uh, examine yeah. or examine. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would play the tape of the day and would evaluate all the ways in which I was Christ to the people that I interacted with and the ways I received Christ from the people that I interacted with. And that was a really sobering time 
you ask for forgiveness for times that uh, you did not do as well as you should have, and uh, then celebrate the ways in which God used you and worked through you and in you. So that disequilibration calls me to rethink who I am. Yeah. And I hear you committing to these... Um, uh, you talked about spontaneous formation and intentional formation. I hear you committing to these intentional formations because of spontaneous formations, or was it a little bit of the other way around? How, how does spontaneous formation and intentional formation, how do they play together? Yeah. Uh, one cannot predict or even anticipate spontaneous formation. Mm -hmm. uh, that everybody will experience. It's not if, it's when. Right. So the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, uh, you just fill in the blank what all that might be. Yeah. Uh, what one would like to think is that the intentional practices have built such a reservoir mm. in you that you're there able, therefore able to absorb that and move with confidence uh, into God's preferred future. Yeah. Uh, I didn't always find that true. Okay. Uh, when my wife uh, became so ill, uh, I had a very difficult time even verbalizing words of prayer. Sure. Um, but the faith community, I remember Daryl Tippins called me uh, one time and uh, prayed with me over the phone. Yeah. There were more than 300 people that came to the ICU waiting room during those two weeks that uh, my wow. wife was there. Uh, many times people would pray with me and for me. So I think intentional formation provides really helpful reservoir, but that's not all there is. Sure. The example that is uh, wonderful in one of N.T. Wright's book is about uh, the flight that took off, and uh, as soon as it got airborne, it hit geese yeah. and uh, Sully, yeah. Sullenberg was the yeah. pilot, and he tried to figure out, what am I going to do? Uh -huh. Am I going to land on one of the uh, turnpikes, uh, or am I, what am I going to do? And what he finally decided to do was to land in the river. Right. And as you know the story, there was no one lost in that. Right. Sully had been a glider pilot in addition to being a jet pilot. Mm -hmm. And so his instincts took over. All the things that he knew and experienced and had built in his reservoir of aviation took over, and he was able to save all the people on that plane. Yeah. Okay, if he had not had any of that, mm -hmm. uh, that story would have ended up very differently. Right. So... Um, they are intertwined uh, between spontaneous and intentional. By the way, we almost never talk about spontaneous. Yeah. We seldom go through lament and worship times. Um, we don't uh, grieve deeply about those kind of things because we want it to be positive and upbeat right. and uh, all good and happy. Right. And so, but they're they're integrated and. Uh, it seems to me that you really can't understand spiritual growth, prayer, or almost any other thing in the spiritual life without understanding the integration of the two. Wow. <clears throat> that story reminds me of um, talking about the people, sh people kind of carrying you through that time when your wife was sick uh, and how important community is and maybe how being a part of a community is part of intentional formation. Yes. Um, it makes me think of when we talked about a few weeks ago that we have a personal relationship with Jesus and with God and we also have a communal relationship as part of a church body uh, and hearing you talk about the ecology of 
what was it? What was the yeah ecology of spirituality? The ecology of spirituality, which you know, creating a culture as and that's kind of communal a communal relationship where we're forming our relationship together. How? Uh, so that kind of answers this question, but I'd love to hear you talk about it. Is can you tell you've you've worked in churches for a long time? You've been an elder here for a long time. You've done elder link across the world. You've given your life in many ways to the church and tell us you know why why does the church matter what are we why is what we're doing here important and and that's a big question and but a question i think is a lot of people go to church and a lot of people work at churches occasionally wrestle with (laughs) (laughs) why does church matter (laughs) uh why don't we ask some easier questions matt (laughs) Uh, church matters because it is the only expression that God chose to give to humankind to come together and share life together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're studying the book of Acts in many of the adult classes right now, and you watch Paul go from community to community to community. And uh, those communities struggled and had problems, and it would have been easy for Paul just to say, why do this? But uh, my reading recently said that he traveled 16,000 miles Mm -hmm. during his missionary work. Mm -hmm. It's only 25,000 miles around the globe. Mm -hmm. So he travels almost, okay, so what's he doing? Uh, He is so committed to Christ being formed in each of those individuals and in those communities that he spends his life and goes through all the persecution and everything else. So I don't know of a better example to talk about why church matters than Paul. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then you read all the passages about uh, Christ is the head, it's his body, it's his bride. And that's pretty important language uh, about the importance and the significance, I think, of uh, how God and Christ perceive the church uh, why is the Highland Church important? We live in a very secular age, and uh, secular age of nationalism and white supremacy and all the other kind of things, and we need a centering place where we can come on a regular basis, uh, gathering with people, podcasts, uh, small groups, a jillion different uh, contexts for that. But we need a place where we come and have conversation partners and really deal with what matters. If we're not careful, our conversations with people just during the week are about sports and weather mm-hmm. and things that don't really matter. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when you come to worship, Shane talks about what matters. Mm-hmm. Bible classes talk about what matters. Your yeah. podcast talks about what matters. And uh, so we, we must have a context in which we do that. You yeah. can do it through reading, you know, spiritual influencers in your life. There's so many different places that happen. But what matters is church, and church really matters yeah. from my perspective. And having spent, like you said, uh, 60 years in church ministry and at the university teaching uh, ministry, uh, I know it really matters, and I see in fortunate ways in which um, it really beats people up and people yeah. are disappointed and disillusioned and all of that kind of stuff but it still really matters. It's really um, kind of beautiful for me to hear that uh, after as much work as you spend in churches, you're still 
optimistic about it. And you know, I, I have to think of a similar reaction to like when when we see churches being abusive or covering abuses. Uh, my response is, but that's not that's not the church, right? That's <laughs> that's this um, legalism, institutionalism that has to cover things up. And so, when the church is at its best, there's still so not only so many reasons for optimism, but the only reason for optimism. And um, it's it's helpful for me to see someone like you further on down the road who's still uh, optimistic and, and uh, not not overly cynical about what the church is doing. The issue of optimism is really important to me, David. Mm-hmm. But so is uh, perceiving church in other ways than consumerism. Sure. Yeah. So many of my peers uh, see church as what it does for me and what I'm comfortable with and uh, what is the latest thing that it's helped me with. Yeah. And uh, Scripture never says this is about you being comfortable. Mm. It talks about taking your cross and following Jesus. And so when people talk to me about uh, younger adults and uh, doesn't that make you nervous and my response always is, no, that's next church. Mm. God has always used uh, the next generation uh, in different kind of ways, different perspective, different vision, different practices, but God has always used next generation uh, to continue with the church. Mm. Uh, the church is not in trouble. Uh, it's declining in North America, and there's mm-hmm. all kind of issues, and uh, you read the stuff about missional ecclesiology and all that. The church is not in trouble worldwide. It's yeah. flourishing. Right. Uh, in North America, there's plenty of things that are mitigate, mitigating against it, but the church is doing fine. Right. And Even the, uh, <clears throat> the truest thing to say is that the predominantly white evangelical church in North America is in trouble. Even, even um, uh, uh, immigrant uh, uh, minority churches in America are growing. Yeah, and but you could say the same thing about Protestant churches in North America sure. and Catholic churches and so yeah. forth. One of the encouraging things to me is that uh, 15, 20 years ago, only about 6 or 7% of the churches in North America uh, were multicultural churches, mm-hmm. which means you only had to have 20% different than your culture. So if you're a Korean church, you only have to have 20% Hispanic to be a multicultural mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. The good news is evangelicals now are about 22 or 24% multicultural. Interesting. Uh, Protestant churches are about 17 or 18%. Okay. So I think there's some hopeful kind of things yeah. that you're seeing out there. Uh, as I look at young adults, what I'm seeing with young adults is they have a passion uh, for being God's people. Yeah. Now, they have a different perspective of the institutional church yeah. than I had, mm-hmm. uh, but... Their perspective of uh, being God's men and women, being disciples of Jesus, is very firmly rooted in many of their lives. Yeah, and somehow that means a, a, a community that works with each other in their differences. Doesn't ignore differences, doesn't subjugate minorities, but somehow that, and we might even infer that the Spirit then moves amongst cultures and communities that can be intercultural. Absolutely. I think Jonathan uh, Starmet was the first person I ever heard use the word generational 
uh, generosity as a generation. Yeah. Genero what yeah. word? Uh, generational. Generational generosity. Okay. But but what he's saying is that the young are respectful and uh, love the older people. The older people love and have great confidence uh, in the young people. Yeah. The uh, growing young initiative we have here yeah. means that older people are willing to take keys off their keychains yeah. and give it to young adults. It means that you trust young adults uh, to make decisions, you include them. And so our elder selection process is a marvelous example of that right now. Yeah. You've got cross-generation, Terry Pope's 80, all the way down to uh, probably early 20s. Yeah. And, uh, was a junior in high school. Senior in high school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a really healthy thing yeah. to, for a church to be intergenerational. Yeah. yeah. You've, you've got to be intergenerational to be healthy. And interestingly, the institution of the church is the only intergenerational that sometimes includes five generations of uh -huh. any institution in the United States. That's amazing. That, of, that's very encouraging. Yeah. One of the things that, that I love about Highland is its commitment to inter, intergenerational ministry, especially as we were talking about people entering into a searching, a searching faith or even a deconstruction, and that, that endless well that you can go down of you know, negative things about the church. Um, one of the only ways that someone can find an anchor in that is to have intergenerational relationships yep. and people who have walked through these times before and and a, a real place to have a discussion with that's not a 140 characters or a 30-second video. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is one of the things, especially as, as a father of four kids who are growing up and in this time, um, being in a place where we place a value on the wisdom of the older people and a value on the spirit of the younger people and uh, you know we're prioritizing every generation to to not be their own thing but to be together yeah. and work together and learn from each other that's uh, one of the most beautiful things about Highland yeah. I think that's one of the greatest challenges though Matt about the large church mm -hmm. is it's closely graded. Young adults are here, the middle-aged adults here, the sure. older adults are in their class, and even with small groups, it's really hard for those to be heterogeneous mm -hmm. as opposed to homogeneous. Um, so when you look at small churches, even rural churches that have 100 members, um, the grandparents, the parents, the children, um, all interact and have meal together and it's really incredible yeah. how helpful that is but your principle that you picked up on here that i think is so critical is that one of the ways that we grow and mature most spiritually and even through our prayer life is through having spiritual exemplars mm -hmm. somebody that you know and watch and see and so i've told you that the highland elders in the past have been my spiritual exemplars and i think you're right that young families, many times, who live a very long ways from their parents, uh, really are, have, are benefited whenever they have other people in that church intergenerationally that moves alongside. Mm, right. And uh, I will just tell you that is difficult to do in a large church, yeah. and you have to have real intentionality uh, for that to work. And again, the Growing Young initiative, I think, is uh, important there, right. and there's probably 20, 30 different strategies that can come out of that uh, movement that would help do the very things that uh, Matt's talking about. Yeah. 
as far as uh, having opportunities for older with younger children with grandparent types and so forth. Uh, Jeannie and I have never had uh, our four grandchildren live in the same town with us. Mm. But I've been so thankful for grandparent types mm -hmm. in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Dallas, Texas, and other places that have moved alongside them and have served in that kind of mature, uh, encouraging role with them. Well, um, I, I, you know, we, we invited you here to talk about prayer. I think we've covered um, prayer and deconstruction and uh, missional <laughs> ecclesiology and and uh, I've. We've got to, unfortunately, just wrap this up. But uh, I, I want to just do that myself by saying, uh, you know, as someone whose uh, family is not in town the way that you and Jeannie have been, um, spiritual exemplars for me and my family and, and many other at Highland, and even your willingness to come do this, you know, I think there's a chance a young person can listen to this and, uh, and see their uh, spiritual journey in the next stage or two because you're willing to come down here and share so much of your story. I want to say thank you. Yeah, pleasure. I obviously have deep respect uh, for the staff, for the elders, for all the folks that call Highland home. Yeah. And uh, it's a privilege to be with Matt and you today. Well, thank you very much.